Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, we are continuing this morning in a series. Uh, in Luke chapter 11, we're going to go verse by verse, line by line, through the Lord's Prayer throughout the summer. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we're going to be in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It's on the screen behind me. And if you're at home, it'll be on your screen as well. Uh, so as we read together, uh, let's, let's look at God's Word now. From Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. This is the word of the Lord. So say with me, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you just pray a short prayer with me? Father, we are not here because we are good, but because we're yours. Thank you for this word. Give us humble, teachable, obedient hearts that we might receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. Forgive the preacher his sins, for there are many. We would see Jesus and him only, and in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I know what you're thinking. How in the world is there a sermon in those two verses? Well, here it is. Nobody laughed. Well, here it is. Here it is. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. Therefore, you and I, we have to learn to pray. And that's the sermon. We have to learn to pray. Because prayer is hard. You have to put in the work. They say it takes 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert at anything. Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this and talked about this uh, in his podcast. So if you want to become an expert on the violin, 10,000 hours of practice. If you want to become a pro golfer and join uh, the PGA Tour, 10,000 hours. I even, wrote a, I even read an article this week about a guy in the UK who's, like, who's done that. He's like 7,000 hours into this 10,000-hour experiment, and his handicap is down to like a two handicap. So the question for us is, what, what, would, you, what would you spend 10,000 hours learning? What matters so much to you? What feels so crucial? What feels like such a worthy goal in your life that you would consider spending 10,000 hours learning to do it? And then, of course, Jesus juke. The next question is, well, what about prayer? Prayer is harder than hitting a Nolan Ryan fastball. It is more difficult than playing Chopin's piano concerto. Would you spend 10,000 hours learning to pray? Now, I did the math. You ready? If you took one hour every day, 365 days a year, that's 25 years. An hour a day, every day for 25 years to get to 10,000 hours. Is prayer a worthy goal to consider that kind of investment in learning how to do it. Now that might sound a little moralistic to you. It really shouldn't. I'm bothered by how averse to moral effort we might become for fear of it becoming moralism. <clears throat> Remember, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to merit. And D.A. Carson's words ring true, I think, even as we consider this this morning. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to the scriptures. We drift... In the other direction, we drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. The text teaches a very simple lesson. It takes some initiative 
on our own to learn how to pray. And that's something we should strive for. Grace-driven effort, however, is not willpower. It is the spiritual disciplines. It's habits. We've spent a lot of time talking about these things over the last year or so. The means of grace. Think about that phrase, means of grace. It's grace, so it's God's work, but there are means. Which means you have to get yourself to where God works. You have to get yourself into the ground so that the sun and the rain of God's grace can do its work in your life. Spiritual disciplines. Prayer is a spiritual habit. It's something you do by direct effort that will eventually enable you to do that which currently you cannot do by direct effort. And so you, you could say it this way. You learn to pray by praying. Or you could say the want to for prayer comes, guess where? From praying. You don't wait for the want to. You pray for the want to. You pray for prayer. That's really what's happening here, right? They are, that should have been the title of the sermon. Joe changed that. Pray for prayer. That's good. You have to pray for prayer. These disciples felt an urgency to learn to pray, and so they knew who to come to. They came to Jesus. Now here's this. I wonder, I wonder if the Holy Spirit might stir the same urgency among us. That's what I'm praying, and that's his job. My job is to take you by the hand and bring you to Jesus as the one who can answer that request. And so let's look at the text along these three headings. And they're just the three points of the outline, as usual, that I've given you in the worship folder there. Let's ask this question. Why, why did they ask Jesus this question? And secondly, what really is, what, what did they ask? What was it, because it was about prayer, but more than that. Why did they ask him? What did they ask? And then thirdly, why is Jesus the one to ask? Why was it? Fitting that they ask him, why is it fitting that you and I would go to him as the one to ask these same questions of this morning? So those three things. Why did they ask, Lord, teach us to pray? What did they ask in asking that? And why is Jesus the one to ask? Okay. First, why did they ask? What prompted the request? Well, let me speak generally first and say that as you read the Gospels, it's common for people to respond to Jesus in very strange ways. Uh, they, they have an encounter with his ministry or his person, and, and the response is often something like, who is this? They were often perplexed or afraid even because they had never seen anyone like him before. There was, there was something utterly compelling about him, something powerful, something otherworldly. I don't even know how to describe it. He was holy. I mean, whatever the normal human reaction to a situation might be, it always seemed like Jesus did the opposite. He zigged when we zag. I can think of a thousand examples. Uh, but I won't take the time to do them this morning. Take my word for it. People were amazed. Just consider, Jesus took, excuse me, he undertook the most urgent work ever assigned to any human being, but did it in an, in an attitude of nearly unbroken serenity and almost leisureliness. He was wonderfully responsive to the needs of others without getting caught up in their anxiety, and could, without, at the same time, without a twinge of guilt, walk away from their demands and expectations. He lived as if his life was completely his own possession, and yet he was free and willing to give it away, or not to. His days were void of chronos time that consumes and devours and pregnant with kairos time. He would say, my time is not yet, or the time has not come. His power was so great that he could not be ignored, but his heart was even greater and met with even more amazement. And this person walking through the pages of Scripture, walking through this tiny little strip of land in, in, you know, on the 
on the sea there was so astonishing that people did not know how to categorize them or even what to do with them. But there's something specific even beyond that. Because here in these two short verses, we see the, the secret to what I've tried to describe to you there. What was really behind it all, where it came from. Because it says here, it's very clear that he had an habit of prayer. Look there in verse 1. It says, he was praying in a certain place. And when he finished... The disciples said, teach us to pray. In other words, the disciples saw his habit, his pattern of prayer, and in seeing the way he would go in and out of prayer, on a day-by-day basis almost, they asked him to teach them to pray because they knew him to be a man of prayer. And in the Gospel of Luke particularly, Luke labors to make this point. One commentator who's, who wrote two volumes on Luke that are about this big, so probably you know nine inches total of writing, he, he gets to this verse in verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, and in his commentary notes, he just wrote, Jesus is praying again. And this is all he wrote. There he is praying again. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine that being say, said of you? Where's Drew? Yeah, he's probably praying again. Has anybody accused you of that? Is it so true of your life that when somebody can't find you and they ask the question, where is he? The obvious answer is, "Eh, she's probably praying. Jesus is praying again. He's praying often. It was true of him. In verse 16 of chapter 5, Luke reports, he would often, this is just, I'm quoting, he would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus was always leaving his disciples are running off to be alone with God in prayer. It was his habit. It was his routine. It was Sometimes he would even spend all night in prayer, chapter 6, verse 12. But most often, either before or after an especially taxing or important season of ministry or some, some important event, either just before it or just after it, he managed his life through prayer. The busier, the busier my life gets, I don't know about you, the busier my life gets, the less I pray. The busier Jesus' life got, the more he prayed. It's very intentional. Let me give you just one example. Mark chapter 1. Uh, it recounts the very first, Jesus' very first day on the job. It's his very first day of public ministry. It's a very long, very busy, very stressful day. And so uh, you, you follow the flow of the, of the um, chapter there. And after spending 40 days and 40 nights in the Aramos, in the desert, in the desolate place, the quiet place, he came out. From being out there for 40 days and 40 nights, he came out of the Aramos for a single day of ministry. And he spent the whole day there in Mark chapter 1, preaching and teaching and healing and exercising, casting out demons. And it was this really long day. And Mark says immediately and then immediately. I mean, it was, you know, when the sun came up all the way to when the sun went down, full of ministry. So he comes out from 40 days and 40 nights in the Aramos, has this really long day of ministry, and then guess what happens next? Mark says that in the middle of the night, after that long day of ministry, he went right back out into the Aramos, and it says, and there he prayed. Now, I want you to get that right. Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in prayer, did one day of ministry, then got up before the sun and went right back out to pray. Now, what do you make of that? What do we make of this? Well, for one, learn the rubric. Learn, I mean, learn from the example of our Lord here. Jesus withdrew, right? He intentionally stopped. He stepped away. He carved out time on his calendar. He left the office. He closed the door so the kids could not get in, whatever the case might be. He withdrew. He found an Aramos. He found a desert place, a desolate, a solitary, a quiet place for undistracted rest and worship. He turned off notifications 
on his phone. He put the phone away. He, he found a noise-canceling environment to be in so that he could pray. He didn't plan. What do you do when you get a night away? I dream of all the Excel spreadsheets I'm going to create, right? <laughs> he didn't plan. He just took time to be with the Father. That's the pattern. That's the rubric. And if you want to learn to pray, you have to withdraw and go to the Aramos and spend your time there in prayer. But here's the other thing. Let me just ask this question. If, if this was needful for Jesus, if, if one day of ministry took was 40 days and 40 nights in the Aramos and then immediately right back out to be with God in prayer, if it was needful for Jesus, what about you? If it was so important, if it was so crucial to his mission that it was his regular rhythm, do you think it's fair to say it probably should be for you and me too? Don't you think? And the disciples noticed. That's the thing here. They had the spiritual intuition to recognize that Jesus' habit of withdrawing to the Aramos to pray was the secret of his power and steadfastness. And so they said, you know what? We need, to, we need what that guy has. We need to learn you know, the things he does. And so they asked him to teach them to pray too. What about you? What about you? Do you need to learn to pray? Will you, this morning, as you sit here, ask Jesus to teach you? Martin Luther is quoted as saying, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend the first three hours in prayer in order to be able to get it all done. And I want you to know I'm trying to do this uh, as your pastor. This past week, in fact, I was able to get away for 24 hours to be alone. Um, and Ashley, my wife, is the best. She, she had to push me out the door and encourage me to do it. I've been trying to do this a few times a year because I, I want to learn to pray. Would you pray that I would learn to pray? Because I want to be a praying pastor, leading a praying church. So... Why did they ask? Because they saw in him a habit of prayer. But secondly, let's talk about what they asked. What is the question here? What's the real question? Because it's about more than just prayer. Look at verse 1 again. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So a reference to John the Baptist there. So we could say that every teacher had his own spiritual method that included prayer. And that's what I think they're really asking. Jesus, what's your spiritual method for approaching God? What is you know, how do, we, how do we do the spiritual life and what role does prayer, prayer play in that? Paul Miller, in his book on uh, prayer, says very directly, he says, prayer mirrors the gospel. It's a phrase I come back to over and over again. Prayer mirrors the gospel. In other words, what you believe about the gospel expresses itself in your praying. If you really want to know what you believe about God, just look at your prayer life. More than anything else, prayer is where all of our bad theology shows up. And so... The disciples here are asking about more than just prayer. They're asking about how to approach God. How do we do this God thing? How do we live the spiritual life? Dane Ortland in Gentle and Lily says this. There are two ways to live the Christian life. You can either live for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live for the smile of God or from it. And in the same way, there are two ways to pray. You can pray to get God's attention and smile. Or you can pray because you already have his smile. There is prayer... That comes from approaching God from what we'll refer to as a pagan or a religious worldview. They are ironically similar, by the way. You'll see this in just a minute. And then there's prayer that comes from approaching God through the truth of the gospel. And I know this isn't in the text, but it's so prevalent, it's clear elsewhere that I think we can make this conclusion. So 
let's, let's just, let's talk for a few minutes about the difference between those two things and talk about this, what I call this religious pagan way of praying. And if you want to, you can look back in your worship folder to that Matthew 6 passage that Jonathan read to us a little while ago, because really a lot of my thinking comes from there. So there is, there is what we would call a religious or pagan way of praying. Now, you might, it might confuse you. Why would those two things be side by side? Well, because they're basically the same. Because in both a religious orientation and a pagan orientation, you are living for God's heart, not from it. You're trying to approach God on the basis of your performance, not his grace and love. So you're praying for his smile, not from it. That's Matthew 6. In the introductory material there to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus describes first the religious version in verses 5 and 6. And he says it's performance. Uh, The religious leaders would stand and they would stand on the street corners and wait for the marketplace to fill it with people. And they would then offer their prayers out loud so that everyone could see them and hear them. They made prayer a public spectacle because, of course, they, that's what they thought prayer was. I mean, it was, it, was, it was the very thing they thought prayer to be, that you make a show of your devotion to God so that he will hear you and see you and be impressed by you. You call attention to yourself. You present your resume, and then if you're good enough and if you do it well enough, if you do good enough, then God will hear you and he'll answer. And so that's what these guys did. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not the kind of prayer I'm talking about. But then he goes on in the very next verses, verses 7 8, to describe the pagan version of the same kind of praying. And so the secular, this is the secular person who, who doesn't believe in God, but isn't courageous enough to not believe in him. <laughs> and so they believe the same thing as the religious person does. It's subterranean a lot of the time, but that, that, that you have to show the right amount of enthusiasm and devotion or what matters are the words that you say. It's magic. It's incantation. So you say the words over and over again as often as it takes, however many times it takes. You heap up empty phrases as Jesus' language because you think that you will be heard, he says, by your many words, which, of course, prompts a really important question. Why does God hear our prayers? Is it because we say the right thing? Or we do it right? Or we do it enough? I mean, that's what the pagans believed. It's what the religious people who act like pagans believe. Does God relate to us on the basis of our performance or his grace? Does he relate to our prayers on the basis of our prayers or for Jesus' sake? That's the crucial question. And Jesus says, don't be like those guys. Don't pray as if God's heart for you is on the line Don't pray as if God's heart for you is dependent upon how well or how often or how eloquently or how passionately you pray. Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. His heart is already set on hearing and answering and doing good for you before you even start your prayers. And so I want you to see the difference here. This is important. Religious and pagan praying is a performance, which means it's mechanical. It's rote. It's just words. There's no hearts. Jesus uses empty phrases it's just empty phrases but it's also anxious it's cautious that's what that language of many words means it, it, the idea is that that you're nervous you know are you have you ever been around somebody that or well, are you like is, are you like me when you get nervous you talk too fast and you say too much it's a common thing right if you're nervous and you're presenting, typically you talk, to more, you, know, you talk faster than you normally would and you say too much. That's that idea there, many words. You're nervous and so you say too much. You're unsettled, you're unsure. Have I done enough, right? You're self-conscious. Your feelings of unworthiness and guilt and shame. That's what happens in religious and 
pagan praying, but praying with the prosper gospel footing is very different. It's simple. It's straightforward. I mean, look at look. Think about the Lord's prayer. Jesus just gives you some just some really. I mean, it's not long. It's not eloquent. It's just Father, your name be praised. Your kingdom come. Right. It's just. It's straightforward, it's heartfelt, it's confident, it's self-forgetful, it gets right to the point, right? You're not worried about whether you're doing it right or saying it right, none of that matters because you know you're a person who knows you have the heart of God. Jesus told the story of two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and it's a story about prayer. You may not know that, but it really is a story about prayer, and these two men, this is in Luke chapter 18, they had two very different approaches to God. The first thought his performance is what mattered most. Uh, And his moralism showed up as soon as he tried to start praying. And that's the thing. Moralism always shows up the minute you start trying to pray. This man, he prayed. Do you remember? You probably know the story. He prayed, I thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector. And then he went on to list all of his spiritual accomplishments. It's the worst prayer that's ever been prayed in the history of mankind. It's, It's not, it wasn't even prayer at all. It was an exhibition He was drawing attention to himself, which is the opposite of prayer. The other man, the tax collector, because he was a sinner. And he knew himself to be a sinner, and he knew his performance would not do. So he'd already settled himself into the idea that his only hope was mercy. And on the basis of God's mercy, in the hope that God forgives, he made his prayers. He believed the heart of God for sinners And so he prayed. And Jesus said at the end of that parable that it was the second man and not the first. It was the sinner and not the holy man. Hear that. It was the sinner and not the holy man who went home with his prayers heard. The religious pagan prayers are often a boast. That's what you see of that man. And here's what the Bible says about boasting. Everyone who exalts himself in prayer will be humbled. Gospel prayers, on the other hand, are honest and sincere and made in Jesus' name with the grace of God in view. And everyone who humbles himself like that in prayer will be exalted, Jesus said. So your prayers or your prayerlessness, they're telling on you. They're showing you what you really believe about God. Teach us to pray here means teach us what God is like. Teach us the right approach to God. Teach us how to live You know, how to live with God. Not like the religious leaders and the pagans, the Pharisee, but like the tax collector, trusting in mercy alone. That's where Jesus is leading us. So John Calvin, I already talked about Martin Luther. So this is a good Presbyterian sermon this morning because we got Martin Luther and John Calvin. But John Calvin set forth his rules for prayer and his institutes. He had four four of them, four rules. He's like, this is how you do prayer. He said, you know, fear the Lord. Uh, you need to have a sense of, of need that excludes all unreality, which is a great, a great statement. A sense of need inside of you that excludes all unreality. And then there's submissiveness and trust in God's power and love. But then he gets to the end of, of explaining all of his rules in prayer. And then maybe inadvertently, I don't know, but then he adds a fifth rule as a coda. And the fifth rule was there are no rules. It was a rule against rules. Because he goes on to say, hey, you know, all of these things are important, but in reality, nothing can, nothing we do can qualify or disqualify us from access to God. It's all grace. So why the other rules then? I mean, okay, then if, you, if that's true, then, then why give me all these rules? Well, consider this illustration from Tim Keller in his book on prayer where, where he talks about this with John Calvin. He said, uh, he used this illustration. He said, when you flick on a light switch uh, and the bulb illuminates, okay, 
So you go into the bathroom, you flip on the light switch, the bulb illuminates. Does the light switch provide the power for the bulb? No. The power comes from the electricity. The switch has no power at all. All it does is connect the bulb to the power source. In the same way, our prayers have no power or no, no virtue on their own. They, that belongs to Jesus. But when we pray in a way that makes much of our prayers, we turn the power off. But when we pray in a way that makes much of Jesus, that acknowledges the grace of the gospel, that flips the switch. And that's what Calvin's trying to get us to do. How do you pray prayers that don't make much of your prayers, but that make much of God and his grace in Jesus? Because that's where the power comes from. And that's what these guys are asking. Lord, teach us to pray. What, what is God like? What is it, how do we live in light of him? But then thirdly, it takes us right to the last thing. And that is that I just want, before we leave, for you to see why Jesus really is the one to ask. That he makes this kind of approach that we've been talking about to God possible, both in his work and his person. And those are theological categories. Uh, when we talk about Jesus' work, we mean his life, death, and resurrection. Hebrews 5, which we read already, says that he lived towards God with the proper reverence. And God was pleased with him, and he heard his prayers because of his reverence. And not only, not only his prayers, but that means that God hears every prayer that's prayed in his name. Because of his reverence, because of his obedient life, because of his record before the Father. And so you can live from God's heart and not for God's heart. You can learn to pray with God's smile, not in order to get God's smile. This is what the gospel allows. This is what faith in Jesus Christ. You can pray that way. You can live from God's heart and pray from God's heart and not toward it because Jesus Christ has won for you the right to come right into God if you come in his name. That is, if you are relying on his righteousness and his obedience and his sacrifice for your sins to be heard. When you put your trust in Jesus and not in yourself, you're united to him. This is what the Bible teaches. You're united to him in such a way that all that is his becomes yours. His record of obedience becomes yours. His standing in heaven is yours. His intimacy with the Father is yours. His right to be before the Father and to come right into God is yours. He's won all of that for you through his work by taking your sin upon himself and being cast out so that he could give to you his righteousness as a gift so that you could come in. That's the gospel. That's the truth of the gospel. And so in believing, you and Jesus become so closely connected to one another that your prayers actually become his prayers. Jesus takes your prayers and dresses them up, however messy and misguided they might be, he dresses them up in his holiness, in his beauty, in his righteousness, and he brings them to God as if they were his own. I mean, listen, and here's the thing. Here's all I want to say. That should get you going. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, that should get you going to know that you don't have to have it all figured out. Just pray. Don't worry about whether you're doing it right or whether you're saying the right thing. That's not the most important thing. Lord, teach us to pray. His answer to that question would be, just get started. Just show up. I'll take care of the rest. Because of his work. But also, let's talk about his person too. Because when we talk about Jesus' person, we mean the spirit. We've already seen in his earthly life, Jesus prayed. He's in heaven now, right? Raised from the dead, ascended into heaven at the right hand of God the Father. He prayed while he was on earth. Guess what he's doing in heaven? 
He's praying. He's still praying. It's what he does. He's interceding for us, Romans 8, 34 says. It's just what he does. From his place at the right hand of God, he has sent the Holy Spirit, his spirit, to be in his people. And so if you're a Christian, if you're here this morning and you believe, you've put your faith and trust in him, you've repented of your sins and come to him, here's what the Bible says. He has sent the Holy Spirit, his spirit. You have his spirit, the spirit of Jesus living inside of you. And that person who you see here, who these men saw and were so enamored with, that person who went through life praying and now lives in heaven to make intercession for us, that person lives in you. And here's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Here's all that means. If you don't have the words, if you don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit can put words to your prayers. Just get started. Just show up. Right? If you want to learn to pray, ask for the Spirit. We talked about that last week. Here's the other thing. No matter where you are, you might be here this morning and you might be saying, ah, this is all just new and I don't even know what I believe about this stuff. So if you're here and you're not even sure about your standing with God, you're not even sure about the spiritual life, whatever the case might be, or if you're here and you just don't have the motivation, if you're not ready to ask the question, that's okay. That's okay, but here's what I'm praying. You may not want to pray, but I'm praying that God would move to make you want to want to pray. Because the Spirit can help with that too. The Spirit not only can help you pray when you want to, the Spirit can help you want to want to pray. But here's the thing. Sometimes you just got to take yourself in hand, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say. You can't wait for the want to. Just get started. Just show up. And ask the Spirit to help you want to pray. Because sometimes, honestly, sometimes that's the most important prayer. Now, next week we will start to make our way through the Lord's Prayer line by line. It's a liturgy for prayer. It's words. But remember, the words don't matter. The only rule is there are no rules. What matters is that you come to God in prayer consciously trusting in Christ for salvation and acceptance and not relying on your own credibility or record. And by the way, as we read in, um, from the catechism, that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. The catechism is so great. It's so great. It says we draw, what it means to pray in Jesus' name, it means we draw our encouragement to pray and our boldness and strength and hope, all of that, we draw all of that from what Jesus has done for us. Where do you learn to want to pray? By seeing what Jesus has done for you. You draw your hope and boldness and strength and encouragement from what he's done to us. It also means that, that we pray in his name because our sins have so far separated us from God that we cannot gain access on the basis of our own performance, that our best prayers are nowhere close to good enough. But Jesus, Jesus Christ is the beloved at the right hand of God. And if your faith is in him, then where he is, you are also. And everything that is his is yours. And all of the access and rights granted to him are yours as well. And the good news is, is that faithful friend standing before the Father is praying for us even now. And so as we're going to sing in just a minute, listen to these words in this hymn. Can we find a friend so faithful who with all our sorrows bear, share? Jesus knows our every weakness.
So take it to the Lord in prayer. Amen. Let's pray and then let's sing. So, Father, we would acknowledge that we are indeed weak, that this text exposes us, maybe even in, maybe even in the simple reality that in the 40-plus years of my life, have I ever consciously come to you and said, Lord, teach me to pray. So forgive me for being so... Uh, what's the word? just so ill-prepared for the difficulty of the spiritual life and so full of self-confidence that I do not live as if I'm a person who with every breath needs the grace of the Spirit of Jesus in my life. Forgive me for trying to do this on my own, for thinking that I am sufficient, that my strength or my words would be sufficient to win a hearing with you instead of in everything and even in this, turning and hoping only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus, you are truly uh, the friend that we so desperately need. And so even as we sing about you now, uh, be a friend to us and do this great work of calling us to prayer and then giving us the heart that we need and the faith that we need to do this work so that you might be glorified. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as you turn your eyes upon him, here's what this benediction says. He turns his upon you as well. He sends us now. This is ascending. That's what this benediction is. And I just want to read a, ver- a couple of verses to you. Jesus says, this just, just blows my mind. He says, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do. That's what he said. Greater works than the things that I have done will he do. Because I am going to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's what these words mean. So go with that promise. The promise that God, because of Jesus and the work that he has done for you, has turned his face upon you. So if you ask anything in his name, he will do it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.